Part 1, Chapter 3, Section 23 of The Life of Jesus Critically Examined by David Friedrich Strauss, translated by George Eliot. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part 1, History of the Birth and Childhood of Jesus, Chapter 3, Announcement of the Conception of Jesus, Its Supernatural Character, Visit of Mary to Elizabeth. Section 23 sketch of the different canonical and apocryphal accounts there is a striking gradation in the different representations of the conception and birth of jesus given in the canonical and in the apocryphal gospels they exhibit the various steps from a simple statement of a natural occurrence to a minute and miraculously embellished history in which the event is traced back to its very earliest date mark and john presuppose the fact of the birth of jesus and content themselves with the incidental mention of mary as the mother mark chapter six verse three and of joseph as the father of jesus john chapter one verse forty six matthew and luke go further back since they state the particular circumstances attending the conception as well as the birth of the messiah but of these two evangelists luke mounts a step higher than matthew according to the latter mary the betrothed of joseph being found with child joseph is offended and determines to put her away but the angel of the lord visits him in a dream and assures him of the divine origin and exalted destiny of mary's offspring the result of which is that joseph takes unto him his wife but knows her not till she has brought forth her firstborn son matthew chapter one verses eighteen through twenty five here the pregnancy is discovered in the first place and then afterwards justified by the angel but in luke the pregnancy is prefaced and announced by a celestial apparition the same gabriel who had predicted the birth of john to zacharias appears to mary the betrothed of joseph and tells her that she shall conceive by the power of the holy ghost whereupon the destined mother of the messiah pays a visit full of holy import to the already pregnant mother of his forerunner upon which occasion both mary and elizabeth pour forth their emotions to one another in the form of a hymn luke chapter one verses twenty six through fifty six matthew and luke are content to presuppose the connection between mary and joseph but the apocryphal gospels the Proto-Evangelium Jacobi, and the Evangelium de Nativitate Mariae, books with the contents of which the fathers partially agree, seek to represent the origin of this connection. Indeed, they go back to the birth of Mary, and describe it to have been preceded, equally with that of the Messiah and the Baptist, by a divine annunciation. As the description of the birth of John in Luke is principally borrowed from the old testament accounts of samuel and of samson so this history of the birth of mary is an imitation of the history in luke and of the old testament histories joachim so says the apocryphal narrative and anna the name of samuel's mother are unhappy on account of their long childless marriage as were the parents of the baptist when an angel appears to both of them so in the history of samson at different places and promises them a child who shall be the mother of god and commands that this child shall live the life of a nazarite 
like the Baptist. In early childhood, Mary is brought by her parents to the temple, like Samuel, where she continues till her twelfth year, visited and fed by angels and honored by divine visions. Arrived at womanhood, she is to quit the temple, her future provision and destiny being revealed by the oracle to the high priest. In conformity with the prophecy of Isaiah chapter 11 verse 1 and following, a gradiatur verga de radice hiesi, et flos de radice ehius escendet, et requiescet super eum spiritus domini. This oracle commanded, according to one gospel, that all the unmarried men of the house of David, according to the other, that all the widowers among the people, should bring their rods, and that he on whose rod a sign should appear, like the rod of Aaron, Numbers chapter 17, namely, the sign predicted in the prophecy, should take Mary unto himself. This sign was manifested upon Joseph's rod, for, in exact accordance with the oracle, it put forth a blossom and a dove lighted upon it. The apocryphal gospels and the fathers agree in representing Joseph as an old man, but the narrative is somewhat differently told in the two apocryphal gospels. According to the Evangelium de Nativitate Maria, notwithstanding Mary's alleged vow of chastity and the refusal of Joseph on account of his great age, betrothment took place at the command of the priest, and subsequently a marriage, which marriage, however, the author evidently means to represent also as chaste. According to the Proto-Evangelium Jacobi, on the contrary, neither betrothment nor marriage are mentioned, but Joseph is regarded merely as the chosen protector of the young virgin, and Joseph, on the journey to Bethlehem, doubts whether he shall describe his charge as his wife or as his daughter, fearing to bring ridicule upon himself on account of his age if he called her his wife. Again, where in Matthew Mary is called he guni of Joseph, the apocryphal gospel carefully designates her merely as he pais, and even avoids using the term paralabain, or substitutes diaphulaxai, with which many of the fathers concur. In the Proto-Evangelium, it is further related that Mary, having been received into Joseph's house, was charged, together with other young women, with the fabrication of the veil for the temple, and that it fell to her lot to spin the true purple. But whilst Joseph was absent on business, Mary was visited by an angel, and Joseph, on his return, found her with child, and called her to account, not as a husband, but as the guardian of her honor. Mary, however, had forgotten the words of the angel, and protested her ignorance of the cause of her pregnancy. Joseph was perplexed, and determined to remove her secretly from under his protection. But an angel appeared to him in a dream, and reassured him by his explanation. The matter was then brought before the priest, and both Joseph and Mary, being charged with incontinence, were condemned to drink the bitter water. But as they remained uninjured by it, they were declared innocent. Then follows the account of the taxing and of the birth of Jesus. Since these apocryphal narratives were for a long period held as historical by the church, and were explained, equally with those of the canonical accounts, 
from the supernaturalistic point of view as miraculous, they were entitled in modern times to share with the New Testament histories the benefit of the natural explanation. If, on the one hand, the belief in the marvelous was so superabundantly strong in the ancient church that it reached beyond the limits of the New Testament even to the embracing of the apocryphal narratives, blinding the eye to the perception of their manifestly unhistorical character, so, on the other hand, the positive rationalism of some of the heralds of the modern modes of explanation was so overstrong that they believed it adequate to explain even the apocryphal miracles. Of this, we have an example in the author of the natural history of the great prophet of Nazareth, who does not hesitate to include the stories of the lineage and early years of Mary within the circle of his representations, and to give them a natural explanation. If we, in our day, with a perception of the fabulous character of such narratives, look down alike upon the fathers of the church and upon these naturalistic interpreters, we are certainly so far in the right, as it is only by gross ignorance that this character of the apocryphal accounts is here to be mistaken. More closely considered, however, the difference between the apocryphal and the canonical narratives concerning the early history of the Baptist and of Jesus is seen to be merely a difference of form. They have sprung, as we shall hereafter find, from the same root, though the one is a fresh and healthy sprout, and the other an artificially nurtured and weak aftergrowth. Still, the fathers of the church and these naturalistic interpreters had this superiority over most of the theologians of our own time, that they did not allow themselves to be deceived respecting the inherent similarity by the difference of form, but interpreted the kindred narratives by the same method, treating both as miraculous, or both as natural, and not, as is now usual, the one as fiction and the other as history. End of section 23